Okay, First Kings chapter 21. If you'll join me there as we continue our study through First Kings together. As we kind of wrap up the book of First Kings together, we continue to focus on King Ahab, this uh, wicked king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, really, we have watched God continuously try and show grace to Ahab. But as the Bible has told us that King Ahab has, together with his wife Jezebel, continued to perpetuate evil activity, not only just in their lives personally, but uh, introducing idolatry and immoral practices and causing the people of the land uh, to sin and turn away from God as well. And really, we kind of come to the uh, the ultimate judgment that God must bring against Ahab as the result of his wickedness. We'll see that as we wrap up the book in the end of chapter 22. Don't know if we'll quite get there tonight, but we see another event here in chapter 21 uh, of Ahab's uh, wickedness continuing to perpetuate through his family, through the leadership position that he has. And as we go through chapter one, uh, 21, certainly there are things in here, again, that this is a literal account. These are activities that took place, but I think as we look at these events here, there's a lot of very fitting pictures of the way that our sinful flesh tends to manifest itself. And by that, I mean, of course, our our sinful nature, our lower nature, that nature within all of us that is sinful, that is bent on doing what is opposed to God and not pleasing to God. And as we look at the way that Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel behave in these chapters, certainly there are many uh, images of the way that our flesh tends to act and really the potential we all have in our selfishness and our ability to lie and be deceitful and to disregard others and to hurt people uh, for our own self-interest and I certainly think there are uh, plenty of pictures that we can see and things that we want to seek to avoid because the Bible tells us to walk in the spirit and not in our flesh and that if we do walk in the spirit we won't gratify the lusts and the evil desires of our flesh so uh, as we begin chapter 21 it opens by telling us that it came to pass after these things that after uh, really the uh, allowing of uh, Ahab to let the king of Syria be released from his grasp and God told him that that would bring about his own downfall because of that mistake he had made after those things it says that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying to him, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. For it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give to you its worth in money. So uh, we're told that at this point Ahab now sets his desire upon a particular vineyard that was there by his, notice verse 1, by his palace, the palace of Ahab that was there in the area of Jezreel. Now, uh, again, Ahab the king, his capital was in Samaria. We know he had a palace as a king in Samaria. But here we're told as well that he also had a palace there in Jezreel that was adjacent to a property that this man Naboth had. A vineyard was there. Uh, and really what's being described here is the secondary palace of Ahab. And this is important to what we're looking at here because Ahab had his own palace in the capital city 
But he also has a secondary palace about 25 miles away in the area of, of Jezreel, uh, which was probably sort of more like a, a summer palace, uh, a very nice area it's describing there. And this would kind of be like, you know, how some people who are perhaps affluent or have greater wealth, they have a property and then they have their vacation property or their second home. And notice that King Ahab's second home wasn't just a home, it was a palace. Uh, so his secondary home or his vacation home was bigger than most people's first homes. Uh, and then we've all seen that before. Sometimes people's second house is even bigger than somebody's first house. And Ahab, the, the picture here, again, he's a king. He's a man of great wealth, great influence. We can see in verse 2 that when he wants this particular vineyard, that he is offering here to give any vineyard that would be better than it or to pay any price, no matter what price Naboth would set upon that vineyard. So it seems that Naboth, this man, had an adjoining property to the palace of Ahab there in Jezreel, and there was a vineyard there uh, that Ahab looked upon favorably. And so he speaks to Naboth, his uh, really his neighbor, and says to him, Give me your vineyard so that I can have it for a vegetable garden. So he was looking for a place to have a little vegetable garden, it seems. And he thought, you know, well, I don't want to have to walk anywhere further away. That's close to my house. Uh, you know, it would be convenient for me. And so he desires this and wants this vineyard. And then he begins to make his plea saying, look, it's next to my house and I'll give you a vineyard better than it. In other words, I'll give you something way better. And again, Ahab had the means to do that. He had the wealth to do that. There was nothing that he really was lacking. He was a very wealthy man. And he says, and if not, then just set the price. Whatever you want, I'll pay the price. Now, uh, it's interesting to see this because, again, keep in mind, as we think about Ahab, here is a man who already has so much. I mean, not only has a palace in the capital city, but he's also got a summer palace in another city. He has apparently multitudes of vineyards because he's offering to give another vineyard that's even nicer than this one. And he apparently has so much money that he can say to somebody in a real estate transaction, I want your vineyard so bad to make my little vegetable garden. You set the price. I'll pay you over market value. Whatever you want, set the price. I want to buy it from you. So here's a man who has anything that he desires. He is lacking nothing. And yet, what is he? Discontent. He's still discontent. He still needs one more vineyard, none more property, one more thing, and so much. He has obviously plenty of his own vineyards. He has plenty of money to, to create and do anything he wants with. And yet still, here he is now covetous of what another man has. He's still not content in what he has. It's not enough. He needs something else, one extra thing. And again, we just see the covetousness of his heart and the discontentment of his spirit. But you know what? This is certainly a problem for all of us in our humanity. You know, th this is a, a thing that any one of us can struggle with. You know, it is amazing how the Lord can be gracious to us. He can supply our need. He can often many times, you know, he's bountiful with us. He gives us so many times above and beyond what's even just sufficient and above what our need is. And yet so often our flesh, like Ahab, is still discontent. It's just not good enough. We need that thing too. Or that other thing there, or we need a little nicer vineyard, or a little nicer property, or, or what we have isn't enough, we, we have to have that as well. And so we start to covet what someone else has, and, and we feel you know, sort of discontented because we don't have everything that we want, so we long for the next thing. 
And covetous so often becomes such a ugly thing in our life because then covetous just perpetuates so many other sinful and wrong activities. And that's where we're going to see what happens here with Ahab. So he makes this plea and he's probably thinking that, you know, Naboth is going to come back and just grant him what he wants. He's the king. He just proposed a very appealing offer. I'll give you a better vineyard. I'll pay you anything you want. He's thinking this is a, a sure win here. I mean, how could this guy turn this down? And I'm the king on top of that. Verse three, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. So it seems that Naboth really doesn't even have to think about it. And we're going to see here. The reason why is because Naboth was a man of principle and he had conviction do you notice here, he's not just being stubborn and obstinate and saying, you know what? No, that's my vineyard. And I'm not going to give it to you whether you're the king or not. It's not a matter of somebody being obstinate or stubborn and trying to dig his heels in. Do you notice what he says there in verse 3? Two things. He says, the Lord forbid. In other words, he's saying, the Lord would not grant me to do what you're asking. It would be contradictory to what the Lord would want. The Lord would forbid me to do what you're asking of me. And we'll talk about that why in a minute. And he also, notice, he does not refer to it as his vineyard or his land. Do you see what he calls it in verse 3? He says that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. He says, give me your vineyard, and he doesn't call it as his vineyard. Naboth says, this is the inheritance of my fathers. Now, what Naboth is revealing to us here is he did not feel this is something that God would approve of and so therefore he will not consent to make this compromise no matter what amount of money is offered to him because he's a man of conviction and principle. Again, by way of background, it's been a while since we've been there in our journey through the Old Testament. Leviticus 25 verse 23, God said, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. And then again, in verse chapter 36, verse seven, God said, so the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Again, the word of God forbid Naboth to do what King Ahab was asking him to do. The word of God, God declared, look, the land doesn't even belong to you. The land is mine. You're nothing other than just tenants in the land. I may allow you to live in that territory. And God, remember, allotted out the land of Israel by tribe and to the, each inheritance of each fatherly you know, group and family line according to the way that he wanted it allotted. And so therefore, God said, look, the land is mine. I don't want the land to be sold. And I don't want the land to change hands from this family's inheritance to that family's inheritance. And really what God was doing was he was preserving that there might be equality in the land to make sure that people didn't oppress one another and take over too much territory and therefore abuse and take advantage of it. So God said, look, that inheritance is a God-given inheritance. That's what I've allotted to you, and by principle, I don't want it to change from one family to another. And even if they had to sell it because they fell into debt or desperation in the year of Jubilee, it always was given back. And so Nahab understood, Naboth understood what the word of God said, and, and his principle was, listen, I understand what you're offering sounds very appealing, but you're asking me to violate the word of God. 
and I cannot violate what the word of God says. The word of God has authority over my life. And see, sometimes we find ourselves like Naboth really facing the same thing where our, maybe our own fleshly desires and our ideas or our impulses tempt us to want to do something that's a violation of the word of God because we want something and we want something carnally or sensually or we desire something and so we long for something and we're discontent and we want something that is forbidden by the Lord and our flesh is saying take this you know take advantage of this and and the spirit of God is saying to us no listen that would be a violation of the word of God the Lord forbid that you would do that and then it becomes an opportunity where we have to choose are we going to be a person of principle and conviction and honor the word of God or are we going to be a person who selfishly just gives into our feelings or our longings or our impulses in a particular situation and gives way to our desires even if they're God forbidden desires and see sometimes the flesh as well we'll find ourselves confronted where maybe it's not a desire within but maybe someone from without like Ahab is presenting something to us and trying to you know create an opportunity for us to engage in something and like Naboth what a wonderful example here he is to us now he's going to suffer greatly for his stand but he sets a phenomenal example in the word of God as just someone who loves God and honors the word of God more than he does being willing to just compromise and do what seems to be personally beneficial. So he says, the Lord forbid, I can't give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab, verse four, hearing now that his offer has been declined, his request has not been honored, Ahab went to his house sullen and displeased. This guy had a habit of that. He did it last chapter as well when he didn't get his way. He went to his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, the king did, and turned away his face and he ate no food. He didn't get his way. So Kingy Wingy is going to throw himself a little pity party here and so he just you know like a little boy he goes back to his palace and he goes up to his nice kingly chamber and he plops down on the bed and he's sullen and gloomy and upset and you know mad that he didn't get his way and so really he just he starts pouting this man this king this this you know person who was supposed to be a, you know a grown mature individual here he's laying on his bed with his face to the wall that's it, I'm not eating dinner. In fact, I'm never eating again. I'm just going to starve myself to death. And he just starts pouting and having a pity party and sort of over-exaggerating because something didn't go his particular way and because he didn't get his way and he didn't get what he wanted. And boy, I'll tell you, our flesh at times, our human nature, our sinful nature, it's amazing how we wouldn't wish to admit it. But boy, we're, we're, we're pretty good at throwing our own pity party when we don't get our way sometimes. And it's amazing how sometimes just something so simple maybe doesn't go the way we wished it would or we don't get what we desire in a situation and somehow, you know, we're, or, or, or perhaps even we're just told no and we're not able to get what we want and then as a result of that, boy, the overreaction and all of a sudden we're pouting and throwing a pity party like Ahab and of course that never solves anything it just if nothing else is an indication oftentimes of our own selfishness because the reality is is who are we like Ahab to think that we're entitled to everything we're not 
We're really not entitled to anything. God's gracious to us. God gives us so much. But, you know, a lot of times our pouting and our pity parties are because we feel that we're entitled oftentimes to a whole lot more than we're really entitled to. And, and, and he wasn't even entitled to this. This wasn't something that was, he was deserving of that he should have. And now he's upset because he didn't get his own way. Well, uh, he's got quite the interesting spouse because verse 5 knows what's going to happen. Jezebel, his wife, came to him. So she doesn't see him at the dinner table. And where's, where's Ahab? Oh, I don't know. We haven't seen him all afternoon. He's, he's been in his bedroom. So well, what's the matter with him? So she goes to check on her husband. She finds him with his face to the wall, not eating dinner. And she says, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? What's the matter with you? And he said to her, and again, I, I can't imagine the voice. I won't imitate it. Because I spoke to Naboth. Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite. And he said, I said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, that's really not the whole story there. So not only does he recount what happened, but the reality is that's not fully accurate what he said. Naboth did not just say to him like a stubborn, obstinate person, I'm not giving you my vineyard. That's not what he said. Naboth said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's king. The Lord forbid, the Lord would not allow me to give to you that which God has given as an allotment to us. And you know what the word of God says, King, we're not supposed to exchange and sell the territory that God's given to us. That would be a violation of God's word. And I can't violate God's word, even though you're the king of Israel. And I like that because, again, that shows me he's a man of principle and a man of conviction that whether it's the king or whoever it is, God was ultimately Naboth's king. And he didn't walk in the fear of man. He wasn't impressed with somebody just because they were kings. God is ultimately my king. I can't violate the king's word. I can't violate the true king's word. Now, when, when Ahab reports this to his wife, he kind of gives a little bit of a different impression. He just said, I won't give you my vineyard. That's really not what happened. But again, so oftentimes in our flesh, in our humanity, that we can often be guilty of that kind of stuff too, where we recount a situation and we're not really too accurate in the way we recount the story. Who's not done that before? Where again, because maybe we're disappointed or upset or something didn't go our way, and then we start to recount the story. And the reality is, if there were someone there to give us witness or hold us accountable, I'm sure they would gladly on more than one occasion say to me or say to you, mm, that's not really accurate the way you're describing that there. You're leaving a few details out in the story there. You're not giving a full representation of really what happened or what's said. But again, uh, so often our flesh just sees things our way and doesn't want to see it in any way in consideration of others. So he, he said he wouldn't give me my vineyard. Well, verse 7, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. In other words, you're the king of Israel. What are you talking about? Somebody wouldn't give you something? You exercise authority over the whole land. Arise, she says, eat food. Let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So when Jezebel hears this, th this is just foreign to her. Again, remember, she's a Phoenician woman who married King Ahab, an Israelite, and she's thinking, from where I come from, kings do what they want. 
if you're a king and you want something, you just take it. What are you talking about? Did you forget you're the king of Israel and you're going to let some commoner tell you that he, he can't have your, you can't have his vineyard? And when you even offered to pay him for it, whatever he wants, so she's thinking, what's the matter with you? Don't you remember you're the king? You have authority. Exercise your authority. Use your power. What's the matter with you? So she's kind of reproving him because this doesn't you know, set well with her mindset. And so then ultimately she decides, look, if you're too passive and too cowardly to do that yourself, she says, well, then move out of the way. She says, you just go cheer up and have dinner because I don't want you pouting all night long. And she says, I'll go get the vineyard for you. She says, I'll take matters into my own hand. And now here again, this is the nature of uh, really of, of Jezebel. We'll see Ahab was his problem. Certainly, and again, this becomes the marital you know, issue among them. Ahab was way too passive as a man. And Jezebel, unfortunately, was way too pushy as a woman. Because <laughs> she says, if you're too passive and cowardly to do it, move out of my way. Then I'll get it done. I'll take control and I'll do this for you. And she says, I'm going to go get you the vineyard. Verse 8, and she wrote letters, here's how she did it, in Ahab's name. And then she sealed them with his seal. And then she sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And so again, Ahab is permitting this. He's allowing it. He's not putting a stop to it. He just kind of takes the back seat lets his wife begin to just take the lead and take control in this situation and now they're going to do something very hurtful and horrible to this family ultimately lies and murders to obtain what they want selfishly here and one sin the sin of discontentment and covetousness just leads to further sin and evil because it's not checked or it's not repented of so she says i'm going to get this for you she writes out these letters and the, the name and the seal of ahab and sends them here's what she wrote verse 9 she wrote in the letter saying proclaim a fast and seat naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men scoundrels before him to bear witness against him saying you have blasphemed god and the king and then take him out and stone him that he may die so she comes up with this plot to basically create a scheme to cause Naboth to get murdered so that then they could just go in and easily take over his territory afterwards. And, and here's what's interesting. Not only is this sneaky and deceptive and selfish and cruel, but on top of that, take notice what Jezebel is doing. She actually is manipulating her own knowledge of the very word of God. Because notice two things. She said, find two men who are scoundrels that can bear witness to the fact and say in a lying form, he blasphemed God and the king. Now, she understood and the law of God stated, if you blaspheme God or the king, that was a capital crime. She knew that from the word of God. The Bible also says that by the mouth of what? Two witnesses a matter would be established. So she knows enough about the word of God to basically manipulate the truths of God's word in a selfish, deceptive way. She abuses the word of God to be able to selfishly get what she wants in the situation. She says, look, if we say that he blasphemed God and the king, and if we have two witnesses that are emphasizing that that is true, that will be grounds to get him murdered in the city. 
So she creates this plot, signs this death warrant, if you would, sends the letter, asks for this to be done by the wish of King Ahab with his seal upon it. Verse 11, so the men of the city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of a city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it is written in the letters which she had sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast. They seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And then two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. And then they took him outside the city and they stoned him with stones so that he died. So take notice, I mean, how far? Lies, deception, ultimately murder, murdering someone else, an innocent man, just to obtain something that's so trivial that they want for themselves. But again, this is just such a fitting picture of the way that our sinful nature and our flesh can tend to really manifest itself at times. That when a person wants something and they set their desire on something, it is amazing how when somebody's sinful nature prompts a person to desire and chase after something, the things that people will be willing to do, to lie, to be cruel, to disregard God, to disregard people, and to treat people in harsh ways, not only that, literally to destroy other people's lives just to get what they want. And see, our flesh is such a selfish, selfish thing within us that it is amazing how if it is not dealt with how it will continue to just press further and further and go darker and deeper and here I mean think of what transpired the reality just to get this vineyard they didn't even need but just the strong I want it so therefore I'm going to do whatever it takes disregard God disregard people hurt and destroy lives lie and cheat and steal to be able to get this so now Naboth has been murdered Verse 14, and then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. So she says, he's dead. Go get your vineyard. Stop your pouting, go get your vineyard now. And so it was, verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, now take notice, when they engage and they follow through and their sinful desires and they carry out this deed, now here comes a word from the Lord to bring conviction and and to call into judgment the sin and the wrongdoing that's taking place. And God's going to do this through his prophet Elijah. Here we see Elijah come back on the scene now and God's going to be sending Elijah with a message to rebuke Ahab for what he's done. Verse 18, God told Elijah to arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel who lives in Samaria. He says, there he is, notice from God's perspective, in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. Take notice, from God's perspective, it doesn't matter what people did, God still knew who that vineyard rightfully belonged to. 
And look, we can take things that do not belong to us, whether it's taking property, whether it's taking another person that doesn't belong to us in adultery or wrong actions, or whether it's pursuing sexual relations with somebody that's not yet our spouse and we're taking something that does not yet belong to us. And from God's perspective, uh, his perspective is very clear on that. It doesn't belong to you. You've stolen that. That's Naboth's vineyard. So he says, go down, Elijah, where he's standing in Naboth's vineyard, though he stole it. God's perspective was very clear on who it really belonged to that had been stolen away. And he says, verse 19, you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? Again, what does the Bible say? Your sin will find you out. Not too long after this happened, God brings it right to the surface. God flushes it out into the light and God allows this to, to be evidenced. Have you murdered? God knows what he did and taken possession. And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil, notice, in the sight of the Lord. See, this is the mistake so often that when we act in the flesh, in our sinful nature, we so often forget. He says, uh, Ahab, the thing that you overlooked, is that evil that you did? It was in the sight of the Lord. There's nothing that you ever do that we ever do that's not in the sight of the Lord. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 that everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So anything that we do, whether we do that which is good and right, that's done in the sight of the Lord and it pleases the Lord. But when we do that which is evil and sinful and wrong, even if no one else is watching, God sees and God's aware. And it was done in the sight of the Lord. And God will hold us accountable because of that. You know, this is exactly even, again, Moses, one of the Lord's servants, made that mistake back in the days prior to the time before he led the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. Remember, it says that he saw uh, two uh, Israelites uh, fighting, or two, uh, an Israelite and an Egyptian fighting the, the day before, and, and he went up and he saw that Egyptian abusing one of his Israelite family members, and it says that Moses, literally the text says he looked this way, and he looked that way and then he beat to death and killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand now the problem was and of course very shortly afterwards it was exposed what he did is Moses looked this way I don't see anybody watching he looked that way I don't see anybody watching but what he forgot to do was to look up and say oh Lord I guess you're watching and that's so often the mistake that we make in our humanity in our sinful flesh, we deceive ourselves to think that if no human being is seeing what we're doing, that somehow we're going to get away with it or somehow it's acceptable. And it is the wise person who lives in the consciousness of the presence of God and the awareness that everything that we do is done in the sight of the Lord and that God will hold us to account for what things we do. And that's why he says, listen, yes, I found you Verse 20, what, 20, he says, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
God saw everything that you did, the conversation that you had with your wife, the plans, the plots, the lying, the deception, the murder. He saw it all. God was fully aware of it. In verse 21, the, the, the consequence, behold, I will bring calamity on you and I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger. And not only that, he said, and you've made Israel to sin. And concerning Jezebel, he says, the Lord also spoke, saying, the dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel, and the dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. So again, just the pronunciation there of God's judgment against the sin of this ruler and what he and his wife had done, propagating such evil in the land and making the people sin as well by influencing them. God says, you know, all of your family, your heritage, your posterity is going to be removed now. And not only that, no one would have an honorable death or burial. And as we've talked about this times before, you know, in that day and among the, the ancient culture and the Jews particularly, to have an honorable burial was very essential and vital to them. It was a matter of dignity. You with dignity buried your loved ones. And so for a body to die and to just be left to be eaten by you know, a predator, by a dog, or by a, a bird of prey to come. And that, I mean, that was just a disgrace. It was a dishonor. And God is saying here, because you have done what is so dishonorable and so disgraceful, he's saying, because of that, you will be shown no honor. The dogs, he says, will eat whoever dies in the city, and the birds of the air will devour the, the carcass, the dead body of whoever dies in the field. Verse 25, but there was no one, again, here's the testament of Ahab's life. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So we have these repeated references to the wickedness, to the abominable activity, the idolatry, the evil that Ahab did as the king. And notice verse 25 gives us again another insight, as I said. It says, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. That is... She had a tremendous influence upon him that his decision to marry her did not help him at all in his spiritual life. That, that marrying this woman, who we know was a pagan woman, a woman who did not share the same convictions morally or spiritually, all it did was lead him further down a path of sinful behavior and idolatry and immorality because his wife Jezebel, it says, was the one who actually stirred him up to further and further evil activity. Look, boy, so important that we recognize as we see this reality. Again, Ahab was quite honestly really a rather weak-willed man, what we see of him in the scripture. He was rather overly passive and cowardly, and he had a very strong, you know, sort of influential wife, and she, in many ways, steered the ship in the way she wanted it to go, and she pushed things 
in a very, very evil and ungodly direction. But I think one of the lessons for all of us here to recognize as we see this dynamic and how Jezebel stirred her husband up, but yet verse 26 says, but yet he behaved sinfully and abominably, incorrectly. God held him accountable for his own actions. Again, she may have influenced him, she may have stirred him to do those things, but ultimately, in, in the judgment that's being prophesied here by Elijah against him, God is saying, Ahab, it's still your responsibility because you're a man and you are supposed to be a leader and you are supposed to provide leadership and you allowed yourself to be led instead of leading the way that you properly should. And so God ultimately says, look, you chose to allow yourself to be led in the wrong direction, but it's still your fault because the buck stops with you. And you carry responsibility. But again, we see the very important reality of the power of influence. And really, where does that power of influence come? In, in connection to the marriage relationship. And boy, this is such a very, very important reminder for all of us. And especially if you're here tonight and you're still single. Let me say, listen, whoever you choose to marry is going to have a powerful influence on your life. A powerful influence. And and. Ahab was powerfully influenced because of the spouse that he chose to enter into a marriage relationship with. And such is true in all of our lives. And look, that can be both for the negative and for the positive. You marry yourself a good godly woman, you'll read the exact opposite of Ahab's life there. You'll read and, and, and his wife stirred him up to live godly and to serve the Lord and always remember to pray and always remember to read your Bible, honey. And what do you think the Lord would have you to do? And you know, so much more wonderful is the good and godly influence of a, of a good godly wife. But in the same way, if you choose to engage into a relationship with somebody who is not in a good place spiritually, you are setting yourself up for influence and drain upon your spiritual life in an unhealthy way. And look, that works both ways. Whether you are a man or a woman, that influence of your spouse is going to be huge in your life. And, and so many of us who are married, you, you know that dynamic. That person is going to have greater influence upon you than anybody. And here we see it perpetuated itself in Ahab's ultimate downfall. Verse 27 says, So it was when Ahab heard those words this judgment that was coming, that he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth. And he went about mourning. So it seems there was some measure of a humbling of himself, of repentance. Now this seems very surfacy, we'll notice, because it doesn't seem to last very long. We'll see as we go into the next chapter. But nonetheless, verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity. So again, it seems there is some measure of humility, of humbling himself. He realizes I'm in big trouble, that you know, my sin is going to bring about tremendous consequence. And we see him here putting on sackcloth and mourning and fasting. And, and God takes notice of his repentance. Now, as I said, we'll see that obviously this seems to sort of just be a temporary momentary thing because Ahab goes right back into his old evil ways. So this isn't long-term genuine repentance, unfortunately. But nonetheless, because he has a, a measure of repentance, God temporarily forestalls 
the judgment that was going to come upon his house. God chooses to show mercy and grace. And boy, what a great reminder to all of us. I mean, when you think of the things that Ahab did and the fact that God would be willing to extend any mercy to him, that's pretty phenomenal to think about. But how great to realize that the mercy of God is so great towards us that God is just looking for opportunities to be merciful to us. And somebody even like an Ahab, if they show any sign of humbling themselves or repentance, God is just looking for an opportunity to be willing to be merciful no matter what we've done. How encouraging that is to realize that if God can be merciful to someone like Ahab, that certainly God can be merciful to those like you and I. Well, chapter 22 says, Now three years passed without a war between Syria and Israel. And then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel, there's a reference again to Ahab. Now, here's the first time we see a king from the southern kingdom of Judah, Jehoshaphat, who we know from Second Chronicles was a very godly king, actually going and you know, sort of interacting with one of the kings in the north, King Ahab. So you have a very godly king now coming to pay a visit to a very ungodly, wicked, evil king, Ahab, there in Israel. Now, we know from Second Chronicles 18, the reason because of this is because their son and daughter entered into a marriage relationship. So that's the reason for this visit. But while he's there visiting Jehoshaphat, it says the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat and his servants, do you not know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. We should take that territory from the Syrians. So he said to Jehoshaphat, why is there visiting? Will you not go out with me to fight Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are and my people as your people and my horses as your horses. So Ahab realizes, look, I can't conquer them myself. What do you say we enter into a political alliance? What do you say we join together our militaries and your military with our military, we can engage together and if we partner together and, and we come together in unity, we can conquer the Syrians. Now, the mistake that Jehoshaphat makes, here is a very godly man and he says, I am as you are and your people as my people. No, you're not. Jehoshaphat, you're a godly man. You walked in the ways of the Lord. Second Chronicles tells us that he was someone who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And now, for the sake of quote-unquote unity, he's making concessions and compromises and he's entering into a partnership with someone who is ungodly, who does not have the same moral or spiritual convictions as he does. And he's really causing himself to become in an unequally yoked fashion here, which will lead to great problems. So Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, well, look, if we're going to do this, please inquire of the word of the Lord. Hey, we should at least pray, he says. Let's, let's inquire the word of the Lord regarding this battle. So verse 6, the king of Israel, Ahab, gathered the prophets together, about 400 of them, and he said, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight or shall I refrain? So they said, go up for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So notice, Ahab gathers together, it just says the prophets. Now, who these prophets are, we don't really know. It doesn't say they're prophets of Yahweh God, prophets of Jehovah God, the Lord. It just says he gathered together prophets. We know that they had prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah. I mean, they had many different kinds of prophets, spiritual leaders. So he gathers together his prophets 
And he says, hey, give us insight. Should we go up and fight or should we refrain? And those prophets say, go up. Notice for the Lord, notice small L-O-R-D, not capital L-O-R-D, which is the, the word Yahweh or Jehovah in the Hebrew. That's just the term Adonai, which means master. So they basically say, go up for the master will deliver it into the hand of the king. Well, what master? Who, who are you inquiring of? What master are you talking about? So they say, go, engage in the battle. Well, notice verse 7, Jehoshaphat, he seems to discern something doesn't seem right there. So Jehoshaphat, being a godly man, he says, is there not still a prophet notice of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital, in other words, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh God, the true God? Let's not just ask a spiritual leader. Is there, a, there's there a genuine prophet of the true living God, Yahweh God, that we can inquire of? I'm not comfortable with that prayer meeting, he says. That we can inquire of him. Let's ask God, the genuine God, what he wants us to do. Well, look at the answer. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, well, there is one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. So he says, well, I mean, I mean, there is this one guy. Yeah, he's a prophet of Yahweh God. But man, I hate this guy because every time I ask him counsel, he never says good things about me. He never tells me what I want to hear. And again, what does the flesh want to hear? Our sinful nature, tell me something good about myself. Make me feel comfortable. Make me feel good about myself. Right? That's what our human nature wants. We don't know somebody that's going to tell us the truth. We know somebody's going to tell us what we want to hear. This guy never says anything good. He's always, I mean, he never says good things about me. I want to hear some good things. He's, this guy always says things that are evil. Well, I wonder why. Because Ahab was always doing what was evil. That was the problem. So he says, look, don't say such things. So the king of Israel called an officer and said, all right probably hesitant go bring Micaiah the son of Imla quickly and the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah having put on their robes sat each on his throne so they're sitting there now on their thrones waiting for Micaiah to come at the threshing floor and all the prophets in the meantime they start to prophesy all these other prophets once again and Zedekiah the son of Cheana had made horns of iron for himself and he said thus says the Lord with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. So take notice that they kind of start this prophet party now. And this one guy, I mean, this guy, one guy says here, uh, Zedekiah, he, he's a prophet with props. I mean, he puts on his helmet with these horns and he's kind of acting like a bull and he's saying, this is what the Lord's going to do like a bull. You're going to just charge and gore the Syrians to death and, and now they're all throwing the name of Yahweh and thus says the Lord. That's what you want. Okay, you want to hear thus says the Lord. We can say thus says the Lord for you. And so these false prophets are encouraging them to go into battle, but these are false prophets. And the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him saying, <laughs> this is so interesting, verse 13. Now listen. The words of all the other prophets are in one accord, encouraging the king. Please, let your word be like one of the words of them and speak encouragement. In other words, can't you just go along with the crowd once in a while? 
All the other prophets are saying good things. They're making King Ahab feel good. They're encouraging him. Hey, King Ahab, you go, buddy. You're going to gore the Syrians and take them down. You just go and attack them. And he says, look, for one time, do you have to be a dissenter? Can't you just go with the crowd? Do you have to always just speak the truth? Can't you just, I mean, just for once, make everybody feel good, would you? I mean, just say what they want to hear. Come and speak what will be helpful and encouraging in this moment. And Micah, I said, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. That's a true prophet of the Lord. Someone who says, I cannot say what you want to hear. I must say what you need to hear. I have to say what God's word says. I can't just pander to your feelings. I can't make you feel good. I can't just say what's going to make you feel happy. I have to tell you what's right. Look, that's what we want in our lives. God help us that you know our flesh often wants to hear what we want to hear. But the genuine part of us, the, the spirit within us, if we are genuine in a right relationship with the Lord, should always desire, you know what, please don't tell me what I want to hear. Please tell me what I need to hear. What would God say to me? I want to know what God would say to me. And he says, I can only say what the Lord says to me. A few more verses. Let's wrap this up. Then it came to the king. And the king said to him, Ai, shall we go to war or shall we refrain? And he answered, go and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, obviously, there must have been a sarcasm in his tone here. We can tell from the next verse. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you will tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? In other words, obviously, Micah, knowing that this process has happened so many times before, this guy just wants me to say what he wants to hear. He gets mad every time I tell him the truth. So he says, all right, king, go for it. Go ahead. Try it out. Go to battle. And right away, the king can tell that there's sarcasm in his voice. And he says, how many times are I going to? You're doing this to me again. Tell me the truth. What's true? Tell me what's true. And he said, well, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. The idea is their leader was missing. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. The idea is no master because their king is dead. In other words, you go into that battle. That's how you're going to die. You transgress the word of the Lord that I'm giving to you right now and you do what you want instead of doing what God is telling you is right, you're going to destroy yourself. And he says, that's what I see. I see if you go into that battle, it's going to be your death. You'll choose to basically enter into your own death. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Didn't I tell you this guy always does this? And again, what he he was bothered because someone told him what was true instead of telling him just what he'd want to hear and you know what let me tell you something when there's a part of your being as there is of mine that when somebody just speaks the truth straight into your life and you don't like hearing what's true and it bothers you because it's not what you wanted to hear that's your sinful flesh that's your flesh And that part of you will also lie to you and deceive you and will lead you into a self-destructive path. God help us to be people that don't want others to tell us what we want to hear, but that instead would say, you know what? Please tell me what I need to hear. 
love me enough to tell me the truth, what I need to hear, because Jesus said it's the truth that sets us free. And God help us to speak the truth and love to one another when it's necessary. Let's stand. Let's pray together.